This morning, I want to pray for a handful of people who are part of North River's family who are going through some challenging times. Uh, let me just tell you about these before I lead you in prayer. Um, Kathy Harrison's mother died on early Friday morning, so we're going to be praying for Tom and Kathy and for Kathy's father as well. Um, her mom was quite elderly, and this was not completely unexpected, but still hard to go through. Uh, Jerry Cammon called me on Friday, and his wife Marge had surgery on her back, and um, while she was in surgery, went into cardiac arrest, and so there are, are very concerning complications that are still uh, being dealt with there. We need to lift up Marge and Jerry. Um, for those of you who don't know Marge and Jerry, they were one of the very first families that, that helped me start North River 30, more than 30 years ago. Um, we've been praying right along for Nancy Merrifield, who has been dealing with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and going through the, the chemo treatments. Thank you for the many people that have surrounded her and brought her to appointments and have just stood in the gap for Nancy. And uh, also, Kim Leveroni Stanley, I think this is the third time during her pregnancy that Kim has been admitted to the hospital, and this has become a very difficult pregnancy for her. So let's pray. Father God, we lift up these family members, church family members, to you. You know them. You care. But you have created this process where you've given us the privilege of bringing our concerns and our prayers and our requests, and all of these deal with either death or medical situations today. And we ask that you would provide help and strength and that you would stand with each of these families. Surround Kathy and Tom and Kathy's father as they make decisions and as they make plans and as they try to gather her family from all across the country. Allow them to know that you are strong and that your comfort is great. We pray for Marge Cammon and ask that you'd have your healing hand on her and that uh, as well that you'd have your arms around Jerry to give Jerry wisdom for any decisions that have to be made. And I pray that you would allow their family to uh, to come together, and Lord, we ask that you'd preserve Marge's life and, and her well-being in every possible way. Thank you for the spirit and the heart that she has given out here in children's ministries and so many things over the years. We pray for Nancy, that you'd continue to fight for her as she fights against this cancer in her body. And we thank you for her cheerfulness in the midst of uh, what has been an agonizing situation, but we, we do ask that you would uh, work through this process and that you'd drive the cancer from her body and that you'd allow her to rebuild strength. And we also pray for Kim. We pray for her little one. We pray for her health. We pray that you would bring her through this time and that you'd delay things just long enough for everything to be right with this little baby. Lord, we, we thank you that you hear our cries and that uh, you... Uh, invite us to pray for each other, to pray for our church as a whole. We pray that our, our witness will be strong and true. We pray that our needs will be met and that you will prompt us again and again in how we can help each other, how we can reach out into our community. Thank you for bringing us here today and for what we are about to learn. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear more about Jesus and hearts to respond the way that he did. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. In November of 2009, an attractive married couple were all over the news after breaching security in order to attend a White House state dinner in honor of India's Prime Minister, uh, 
Menaho and Singh. The couple's names were Tarek and Michaela Salahi. They became a news item after posting photos of themselves at this November 24th White House dinner on Facebook. And then three days later, the White House released photos of them with President Obama, with Vice President Joe Biden, and with other officials and celebrities who attended. And suddenly, a few things followed. The Secret Service was embarrassed, and they were alarmed that this couple had breached security and they'd come as uninvited guests and crashed a White House party. Homeland Security demanded an official investigation, and the news media made them instant celebrities. They were featured on celebrity news and talk shows. They were interviewed on The Late Show with David Letterman. Saturday Night Live did a sketch with Michaela, played by actress Kristen Wiig. And then she ended up with her own cable TV show, Real Housewives of DC. Pretty soon, photoshopped images were showing up like Bernie Sanders memes, like this one where she all of a sudden is photoshopped into a child's birthday party complete with the birthday hat. Okay, America very soon tired of the Salahis and their party crashing. But there's a reason why I wanted to begin with that story today. The Gospel of Luke includes a memorable party-crashing scene that people who love Jesus will be talking about long after the names of Tarek and Michaela Salahi are long forgotten. Our current series is called, Oh, How I Love Jesus. And in this series, we are looking at snapshots of people who were moved to express their love and appreciation toward Jesus. The subtitle of this series is, What Makes Jesus So Attractive? So each week we are asking, what is so attractive that people are drawn to Jesus from generation to generation? And what causes people to express such deep devotion toward Jesus? And we're going to see that again this morning. This morning's topic is an unusual one, and it's risen from a question that Jesus asks in the midst of this parable that he makes up on the spot. Who loves him more? So welcome back to North River Church. I'm glad you're here with us today, whether you've been a part of North River for years or if this is the very first time you're watching or attending this service, thank you for making this a priority this morning. North River is a, ga a growing gathering of people from all around Boston's South Shore and now from a much wider region as many of you connect with us on our online platforms. My hope is that you will dive in today as we take a deeper and closer look at Jesus and the people around him who were deeply affected by his love and his teaching. And my additional hope is that you will be moved to take some next step with Jesus today. This is our vision of who we are, people being forever changed by God's love and daily changing the South Shore and beyond for Jesus. That's what we are finding, that we are being changed, and we are being changed forever by Jesus. Gradually, he is making us more and more to be like himself. So I have a question that kind of leads into this topic this morning. Can you ever mess things up so badly that Jesus doesn't want your love? Are you and I capable of doing that, of messing things up so badly that he does not want our love? The topic is, who is more? And I want to warn you that as we, we wander through the different stages of this particular snapshot, things are not always as they appear. 
The first uh, stage of this particular story is that Luke starts by telling us about the inviter. There's a party that's happening. There's an inviter who has created the guest list. Verse 36 says, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. From the outset, it is noteworthy that this Pharisee is the one who invited Jesus. The Pharisees were a religious community who turned everything into rules and laws. Now, we'd be wrong to think that God doesn't have moral laws for his people. He sure does. But the Pharisees elevated their own traditions and customs and practices to heights that were equal with God's law. And slowly, these traditions and customs became so cumbersome that they literally drained the life out of Judaism. So Jesus regularly challenged their laws and their traditions. In addition, the Pharisees noticed how the crowds of people began flocking to Jesus to hear what he was teaching, and they weren't flocking to hear the Pharisees when they were teaching. So they were jealous. None of these Pharisees openly supported Jesus. Now think of that. We learn the names of a handful of Pharisees. One Pharisee, Nicodemus, sought out and met Jesus at night when no one is around. He had some questions for Jesus, but he did not want to be seen talking with him. Another Pharisee, Joseph of Arimathea, secretly became a follower of Jesus, but the Gospels don't reveal that until after Jesus had died on the cross and needed to be buried. So Joseph and Nicodemus together went and asked for permission to take down his body from the cross and then to lay him in a tomb that Joseph had bought and prepared for his own death somewhere in the future. So the question remains, why did this Pharisee, whose name we come to know as Simon, why did this Pharisee invite Jesus to his home? Perhaps he thought that this was his duty as one of the prominent people in that community. Perhaps he thought that being seen with Jesus would in some way improve his social standing. After all, Jesus was the most talked about person throughout the entire region. Social custom of the day held that a person of great wealth was expected to invite traveling dignitaries or traveling teachers to their homes and maybe even to stay with them beyond eating with them. So this man may have felt obligated that it was his duty he had to invite Jesus. And for Jesus, it would have been an insult to refuse such an invitation. Yet we will soon see, see that Simon failed to treat Jesus with the basic courtesies that were expected. He failed to treat him like an honored guest. So Luke starts by telling us about the inviter, and then he adds in the uninvited there is an uninvited party crasher who begins to dominate the scene. Verses 37 and 38 tell us about her. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Think about this. She was uninvited, yet well-known to that audience. Luke throws in three initial details. She was from that town. She had lived what he calls a sinful life. And she brought with her an alabaster jar of perfume. She was the one who caused wives to ask their husbands, and how do you know who she is? 
Luke's point is that her scandalous reputation was well known to all the crowd and all the town. The jar or perfume that she brought with her was an expensive tool of one of the world's oldest professions. A woman in her line of work used this perfume to entice her clients. It was, in effect, her calling card. And then we need to see a detail about housing designs from that time, which allowed little privacy. Homes were rather small, so outdoor dining spaces were common. It's likely that this dinner took place in a courtyard outside the home with some carefully arranged plants lining the courtyard, which allowed neighbors to look in and yet still providing a veneer of privacy. It is also possible that this Pharisee leaked word to the town that Jesus was coming because he wanted to be seen with Jesus. All this makes me think of all of the outdoor dining arrangements that we've been trying to create and engaging in this past year that have set us up perhaps to better understand what's going on in this part of the Bible. Dinner guests would have been seated on the floor, eating at a low table, perhaps sitting on a pillow or two. And this outdoor dining also made it possible for this woman to silently slip into the space and become part of the scene. Luke gives more attention to what she did that day than he does to who she was. At first, she simply stood behind Jesus, weeping. And then as the dinner progressed farther, she moved closer and closer, lower on her knees, allowing her tears to fall on Jesus' feet. She washed his feet with her tears and then wiped his feet with her hair, all intensely personal and intimate. All of this was silent, highly visible, and awkwardly intimate. And then she raises the intimacy level to even greater heights by pouring her expensive perfume over Jesus' feet. By that point, the perfume would have been so powerful that it would dominate the scene, and everybody would be noticing exactly what is happening there around Jesus' feet. So Luke starts with the inviter, then he adds the uninvited, the party crasher. In the third move of the way he unveils this story, the inviter judged the invited guest. Verse 39 takes us there. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. We don't know what tipped Jesus off to this silent communication that's going on inside the head of the Pharisee. Was there a raised eyebrow by the Pharisee? Was there a knowing whisper to another guest at the table? Was there a disapproving look cast toward the weeping foot washer? Whatever the signal was, Jesus sensed it. He had an amazing ability to read the room. The Pharisee judged Jesus based on the way he allowed this woman to wash and dry his feet. And he had already silently judged the uninvited party crasher, and now he judged Jesus too for allowing such close contact with someone whom he considered to be a sinner. 
His assumption was this. People sent by God do not associate with sinful people. This is the direct opposite of the gospel. The the gospel tells us that God loves sin-trapped people so much that he sent his very own son so that his love and grace would invade the world and transform their lives. The Pharisee, who wasn't ashamed to be seen with Jesus, was now looking down on Jesus. So Jesus not only read the room, he turned this into a teachable moment. Okay, how did he do that? The invited guest, Jesus, exposed the inviter's heart by making up a parable on the spot. Look at the way this reads from verses 40 to 43. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he says. I I read this. It's an eager response. Tell me. I'd love to hear a special teaching from you. Here's the parable. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, in other words, 500 days' wages, and the other 50, or 50 days' wages. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more, he asks. Simon replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus says, you have judged correctly. On the spot, Jesus designs a short parable just for this conversation. The parable is rather simple. Two people owe differing sums of money to the same lender. One, 50 days wages, which is about two months' salary. The second, 500 days wages, which is roughly a year and a half to two years' salary. There's a big difference between those two. Seeing that neither of these debtors has the ability to pay him back, the lender forgives both of them. So the parable itself is simple. It is the follow-up question that mattered the most. The question was this. Now, which of them will love him more? This is a very insightful question. We have been brought up in a culture that teaches us to love all of our children equally, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love across all boundaries and walls. Yet the reality is our world often does not work that way. We love some more, others less. We are loved more by some and less by others. Jesus' question implies that an honest answer acknowledges this reality. And the Pharisee, Simon, says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt. The parable was harmless until Simon had to think about this question. It revealed that Simon had not given Jesus simple courtesies that were expected in that time when people walked over dusty dirt roads. He hadn't given him water to wash or refresh himself, but this woman had washed his road-filthy feet with her tears and her hair. He added that Simon had not given him some olive oil in order to freshen himself, but this woman had anointed his feet with her expensive perfume. Later on, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, would repeat this foot-anointing gesture. Judas, like Simon, wouldn't understand and would even complain about the waste of resources. Jesus' point was this. No amount of extravagance is too great in thanks for God's grace. When you and I fully understand God's grace, there is no way we can outgive the giver. No amount of extravagance is too great 
in thanks for his grace. And then the rule of final stress in these parables kicks in. And so Jesus adds the final comment that dominates. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Ouch. Jesus is teaching us something here about sin and forgiveness. Awareness of sin affects the experience and acceptance of forgiveness. It is not that Jesus was or is unwilling to forgive Simon or anyone else like him. But a fundamental lack of true self-awareness, a lack of understanding one's sins becomes a barrier to grace. Jesus wasn't forgiving her because she had straightened up and fixed herself first because she hadn't. And everybody knew who she was. He was giving her the love and grace of God that allows people to give up the past and to lean into his transforming future. Isn't that an awesome reality about our Jesus? We all have a past. You can't undo the past. The wonderful thing about standing in his grace is his grace gives us a future, a very different kind of future. Tim Keller puts it this way. God sees us as we are, loves us as we are, and accepts us as we are, but by his grace, he does not leave us as we are. So here's the big idea that I want to get across today. We love Jesus more the more we see clearly that only his love and grace can deliver us from ourselves. And we learn some things about Jesus. Let me point out three things that we learn about Jesus through this snapshot from the Gospels. First, if Jesus operated on the principle of guilt by association, we would all be lost. While this account starts with the Pharisee who's not afraid to be seen with Jesus, it concludes with a Jesus who is not afraid to be seen with notorious sinners who need him. If Jesus operated on the principle of guilt by association, there is no way that he would come near any of us. But the truth is he longs to come near all of us. And even those today who reject his name or defy him or who want no part of Jesus, he longs to come near and he gives us a future. Second, you can never be so far from God that you cannot turn back. Now, I don't say that in order to give license, like you can stretch this and go as far as you want and run as far from God, and you might get in trouble that way. Rather, it's you can never be so far from God that He will not allow you to come back toward Him. This is an amazing thing about our God. This woman might have been radioactive in the Pharisees' eyes, but not so for Jesus. Her gestures of love and gratitude were completely welcomed and received because she understood who he was. She understood that he was the very son of God and she fell at his feet. And third, Jesus knows the difference between when we really love him and when we're just putting on a good show. The Pharisee had provided a meal and an invitation, but his heart wasn't really in it. 
This was all for show for some unnamed reason. But the uninvited woman's ministry of tears was fully understood and fully accepted. It was forever rather than being for show. Again, from Tim Keller. He says, legalistic remorse says, I broke God's rules, while real repentance says, I broke God's heart. Do you see the difference between the two? In the church I grew up in, I was raised on legalistic remorse. I broke God's rules. It's all about the rules and keeping the rules. But the truth is, when you really know the Lord, when you really love the Lord, it's more about breaking His heart. And he longs for us to want to do what's right, simply to please him, not just to keep the rules. Again, we love Jesus more the more we see clearly that only his love and grace can deliver us from ourselves. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is prompting you right now to cry out to God, acknowledging that this is less about the rules and more about seeking God's heart. And if he's prompting you to draw nearer to him or maybe even to embrace Jesus for the first time, I'd like you to pray with me. There's a prayer that's going to pop up online if you're watching from your home or wherever. Pray these thoughts with me. Lord, I have broken your heart too many times with my pride with my judgmental heart, with my words, and with my actions. Pour out your love, your spirit, and your grace so that I I may love you more and serve you more faithfully. In Jesus' name. I have news for you. If you pray a prayer like that and you mean it in the depths of your being, He will begin to pour out His love and grace into you, and He will begin to change you and make you and your reactions and your words and your thoughts and even our behaviors more like those of Jesus. Why? We love Jesus more the more we see clearly that only His love and grace can deliver us from ourselves. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for allowing us to be here on this rainy Sunday morning. And even as you are pouring out rain from the heavens, we ask that you would pour out grace from on high to fill us, to flood our reality, to flood our senses, our hearts, and our minds, that we would be filled up to the full measure of your grace, that we'd be so full of the grace and forgiveness that you give us, that it would pour out into the way that we look and look at and treat others. So open our eyes to the opportunities around us this day. No matter who we are, no matter what our challenges are, we are loved by an almighty God who sent the very best that he had, that we might be filled with grace and that his grace might extend to others. And Lord, I pray that as you've given us this mission of grace, you would also give us the hearts and eyes to see around us where it needs to be applied and give us the courage to go boldly, knowing that 
you are the one who carries us into all kinds of situations. That you can even use a newly reformed prostitute to teach a teacher of the Bible who God really is and what God is really like. Thank you for these astounding realities that we find when we look closer at Jesus. Lord, make me, make us more like Jesus. For we know that the more that we are like Jesus, the more we will understand you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we pray. Friends, thanks for being here with us today. If you've taken a next step with Jesus, would you take the time to let me know or somebody else know? Uh, you can just write me a simple email, paul at northriverchurch.org. I'd love to hear from you.